Yes, wealth can insulate you from an interest rate hike. Yes, wealth can provide you with better healthcare options. And yes, those are benefits not to be sneered at. But riches do not profit in the day of wrath. When God intervenes in decisive ways, all such mundane advantages immediately become irrelevant. When the flood came in Noah's day, rich and poor alike were destroyed. When the Assyrians marched against northern Israel in the 8th century BC, rich and poor alike were destroyed. When the Babylonians encircled Jerusalem in the 6th century BC, rich and poor alike were destroyed. And on and on we could go. The Bible here is delimiting the advantages associated with material prosperity. It is saying that money is good, but it is not sufficient to save you. Wealth is helpful, but it is of no account when you stand before God on the day of judgment. Real security is only found in righteousness. If you're in right relationship with God, as New Testament believers, we would want to add here through faith in Jesus Christ, then rich or poor, you will be safe on the day of wrath. Praise the Lord. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Money is good, but it is not sufficient to save you. I love how we are seeing these principles of wisdom balanced against other principles of wisdom, because that's what wisdom is. It's about understanding what is true and how these various true things go together. And here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 11. As I mentioned in the last episode, most commentators assume that the Proverbs in this section, running from chapter 10 through to chapter 15, are arranged in a more or less random fashion. There are a few obvious clusters here and there, but by and large, they all appear to be presented according to the same essential two roads, two houses, two destinies metaphor. We were told in chapter 9 that woman wisdom had prepared her banquet, and woman folly had prepared her banquet. And now the various appetizers and entrees available at those banquets are being compared. That's the overarching idea in terms of theme and organization. Now, that being said, some commentators do see more rationality and intentionality in some of the subclusters that are in evidence. Wherever those suggestions seem compelling, I will do my best to point them out to you. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Let's just pause here for a moment. In the ancient world, a merchant or a trader would use weights in order to weigh out commodities or other items. And unfortunately, it was common practice for traders to make use of two separate weights, a too heavy weight for purchasing and a too light weight for selling. And that is precisely the practice that is being rebuked here. Just Tell the truth. Pay what you owe. Provide a fair measure. False weights are a short-term strategy that forgets that one day you will have to stand before the creator of the universe and the judge of all men and give an account for your dealings. So again, play the long game. 
God hates a false balance. That's what the word abomination means. God actively opposes the deceitful merchant, both in a providential sense and in an eternal or ultimate sense. So any person of faith is going to practice fair dealings. That's the idea here. Bruce Walke suggests that all of verses 1 to 8 represents a logical cluster. And in this case, I find that suggestion reasonably compelling. The organizing theme he suggests is security through honesty and righteousness. I'll let you assess the strength of that hypothesis for yourself. Verses 2 to 8 read as follows. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. So again, I do think there is something compelling about Walke's suggestion here. The overall message seems to be that those who arrogantly and foolishly make a play for short-term gain suffer in the long run. Better to remember your place in the cosmos. Better to play by the rules of the game. Better to remember that there is one who watches and oversees, one who is no passive observer, but who sows disaster and upheaval. He is the judge at the end of the game, but also an active participant in the game. So the wise person understands that and conducts himself or herself accordingly. That's the basic idea here. I particularly appreciate verse four in this cluster, which says, riches do not profit in the day of wrath but righteousness delivers from death. That's a helpful counterbalance to something that we were talking about in the last episode. In chapter 10, verse 15, it says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. So there, the wise father is saying that wealth does insulate us from disaster, generally speaking. But now here in chapter 11, that principle is delimited. Yes, wealth can insulate you from an interest rate hike. Yes, wealth can provide you with better healthcare options. And yes, those are benefits not to be sneered at, but riches do not profit in the day of wrath. When God intervenes in decisive ways, all such mundane advantages immediately become irrelevant. When the flood came in Noah's day, rich and poor alike were destroyed. When the Assyrians marched against northern Israel in the 8th century BC, rich and poor alike were destroyed. When the Babylonians encircled Jerusalem in the 6th century BC, rich and poor alike were destroyed. And on and on we could go. The Bible here is delimiting the advantages associated with material prosperity. It is saying that money is good, but it is not sufficient to save you. Wealth is helpful but it is of no account when you stand before God on the day of judgment. Real security is only found in righteousness. If you're in right relationship with God, as New Testament believers, we would want to add here through faith in Jesus Christ, then rich or poor, you will be safe 
on the day of wrath. Praise the Lord. Again, the basic idea in this section is that human desires tempt us to make short-term plans and to adopt short-term strategies. If that's all you've got, then eventually your hope will perish. You have to see the whole board and you have to play the long game. Verse 9 appears to depart from the previous cluster by returning to the theme of speech. It says, With his mouth the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge the righteous are delivered. In the previous cluster, the focus was more individual. What sort of conduct better positions us as individuals to face the interventions and scrutiny of Almighty God? Here, though, the focus seems to turn outwards. Now we're talking about the effect that our conduct, and particularly our speech, has on other people. The idea here in verse 9 seems to be that by slanderous speech, the godless attempts to destroy his neighbor. But if the neighbor is knowledgeable, he is able to escape. So slander is being portrayed as a weapon, and knowledge is being portrayed as a defense. The Hebrew word translated there as knowledge, according to the dictionary, means knowledge in the sense of cunning. So it's not just the facts that protect us from these sorts of attacks, but a clear-headed understanding of the world and an understanding of how to wield facts as a defensive weapon against the godless. Again, the overarching idea, as Walkie would remind us, is security. There is safety, security, and defense in wisdom. That's the organizing theme he sees for this whole section. Security for one's self in verses 1 to 8, and then now here in verses 9 to 15, security in society. Let's continue to test that hypothesis. Verse 10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure." Walkie provides a summary of the organizing principle he sees undergirding this potential arrangement. He says here, the subunit of chapter 11, verses 9 to 15, reaffirms the power of words to revive or to destroy the community, closed quote. That appears to be generally true. Verses 10 to 11 seem to be saying that when the righteous prosper and when the wicked perish, the whole community rejoices. After all, this means the city is characterized by justice. This, this means that the system is working. Government exists, by and large, to punish the wicked and to empower the righteous. So when that is happening, the polis, the city, the society is flourishing. When the upright are blessed, they become a blessing to the city. As they rise, they lift society up along with them. That's the idea. But by the mouth of the wicked, a city may be overthrown. So we have a blessing and a threat. The lives of the righteous are a blessing to the society. The mouths of the wicked are a danger. Verses 12 to 13 are commending self-restraint 
in terms of speech. If we care about the stability of whatever society we are a part of, then we will be careful how we speak about other members of that society. Tearing down your neighbor is foolishness. His prosperity is your prosperity. His downfall is your downfall. Therefore, the wise person doesn't pick at his neighbor's scabs, nor does he sort through his neighbor's trash looking for evidence of malpractice. We could use a little bit more of this kind of wisdom in the contemporary church. There are far too many people, mostly though not exclusively young men, who feel a divine calling to the ministry of discernment, which basically means listening to everything a fellow pastor has ever said in his sermons or sorting through all of his tweets in order to find something that could be taken in the worst possible way so as to suggest some failure of orthodoxy. Foolishness. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Now, I don't think that means that errors should be covered up. After all, iron sharpens iron. And, and I don't think that means that dangerous or heretical leaders should be given a pass. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. But I do think it means that sorting through your neighbor's trash, looking for something that might embarrass or discredit him, is a foolish long-term plan. Listen, everyone said stupid things in their 20s. I'll save you some time and confess that I said some pretty stupid things in my 20s. But there is wisdom in not digging too deeply into all of that. In a healthy society, neighbors are evaluating each other through a generous lens. That's the general idea. Malicious scrutiny undermines all forms of human fellowship, particularly within the church. And if you engage in it, be sure of this, eventually it will come back and bite you. Jesus said, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew 7, 2. Listen, friend, if you use a fine-tooth comb to sort through your neighbor's words and actions, be sure that a fine-tooth comb will be used by God to evaluate your words and actions on Judgment Day. Again, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Exactly that. Verse 14 and verse 15 focus on how prudent speech, just like prudent silence, can serve to increase the security of human society. Where there is an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Where people are cautious and prudent with respect to their financial pledges and benevolent commitments, there is security. We certainly had a reminder of how unwise loans can undermine social stability in 2008-9 here in North America. We would have been well served had there been more attention paid to this principle by our governments and financial institutions. Verse 15 provides a logical transition to the next cluster, which appears to have to do with the role of benevolence in society. Verse 16, a gracious woman gets honor and violent men get riches. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live but he who pursues evil will die. Those of crooked heart 
are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. This little cluster is asking the question, what sort of rewards are you after? A gracious woman gets honor. A violent man gets riches. Who made the better choice? The wages of the wicked are deceitful, meaning they look like more than they really are. The reward of the righteous is more sure. In verse 19, the question is examined with a wider angle lens. Life and death are introduced into the equation, and we're told that the crooked heart is an abomination to the Lord. So how will such a person who has lived a crooked life and accumulated deceitful riches fare on judgment day? They should think about that. The righteous, on the other hand, have no need to worry, for the way of the blameless is his delight. Again, There is an ultimate or eternal dynamic to be considered here. Understanding that is fundamental to wisdom itself. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Back in chapter 1, I cited Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart defining the fear of the Lord this way. He said, The fear of the Lord is enjoined throughout Scripture, demanding that God's people stand always in awe of Him, appreciate His supremacy and greatness, fear the consequences of disobeying his will, and not treat lightly any aspect of their covenant relationship with him, lest the consequences be severe or even fatal. Attempts on the part of some in modern times to define fearing the Lord as merely respecting him distort the biblical evidence. Closed quote. Well, that is exactly what we're seeing here. Verse 21, be assured an evil person will not go unpunished but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. So, benevolence may seem like a poor choice in terms of immediate returns, but in the long run, it is the wisest of all investments. Verse 22 feels like a bit of an outlier to the group. It says, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Some commentators see this as providing an intentional contrast with verse 16, which said, A gracious woman gets honor, and violent men get riches. So the two verses together intend to form a set of brackets around the conversation about benevolence. The idea being that we should be more like the woman in verse 16, who is seeking honor over the long haul. A woman, on the other hand, who thinks of wealth as mere decoration may look good, but under the surface, she is a force of societal decay. The next several Proverbs may be understood as continuing to reflect on the theme of benevolence, while some others see a small cluster committed to exploring the connection between desire and eventual outcome. And of course, as I've mentioned previously, some commentators see no logical arrangement at all. Certainly, verse 23 is exploring the matter of desire as connected to outcome. It says, The desire of the righteous ends only in good. The expectation of the wicked in wrath. So what your heart yearns for determines your eternal destiny. That seems to be the idea. That's that's a very important truth. And that's a significant challenge as well, because as Jeremiah 17, 9 reminds us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
remember, Proverbs is about how to navigate the realities of the moral order. In essence, it is saying here that good impulses end in good outcomes. Okay. But in a fallen world, that's a problem because, as Jeremiah says, there's something desperately wrong with the human heart. It leans in all kinds of unhealthy directions. So we can't just say to people, follow your heart. Their heart is broken. Their desires are warped. Their inclinations are deceitful. So, of course, we need to take them to Jesus. Only Jesus can cleanse and renew the human heart and fill it with the Holy Spirit of God. That's what turns this verse into good news. Because with the Holy Spirit inside you, your desires begin to change. They begin to point in the direction of good, which is good because righteous desires end in positive outcomes, whereas the expectation of the wicked ends in wrath. Verse 24, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. These three proverbs seem to belong together. They're all exploring and contrasting the dynamics of greed and generosity. Contrary to what we might expect, according to verse 24, the generous person grows all the richer, while the stingy person falls into poverty. But maybe that shouldn't surprise us. Julius Greenstone observed many years ago that the giving of charity has been compared to the suckling of a child. The more the child suckles, the greater becomes the mother's supply of milk, closed quote. So maybe that's just how the moral order works. God has designed the system to respond positively to generosity and conversely to punish greed and parsimony. In verse 26, the focus is on the person who holds back his grain in an attempt to manipulate the price. A curse upon such a man, the people say. Spurgeon agreed with the people in this case. He preached on verse 26 and first drew out the most immediate point. He said, common consent condemns the hoarder and human nature revolts at his offense, close quote. However, Spurgeon saw in this principle an application to all those involved in gospel ministry. He said to his hearers, by your leave, I shall now take a step above my text using it as a ladder to mount to a yet higher truth. If it brings a curse upon a man to withhold the bread which perisheth, what a weight of curse will light upon that man who withholds the bread of eternal life, Close quote. Amen. And that's a helpful reminder of how these principles can be applied. A principle is often stated in terms belonging to a particular context. Here, the context is the selling and storing of grain. But the principle is by no means confined to that particular context. It can be, and it should be, carefully extracted and reapplied in other places as appropriate. The principle is that generosity and openness will be rewarded, whereas greed and parsimony will be cursed. In the marketplace, in the public square, and if not there, then surely at the final judgment. Reader beware. Verse 27, whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. 
This verse may be intended to serve as an outer bracket in partnership with verse 23 to close off the cluster of Proverbs reflecting upon desires and their outcome. The message here is essentially the same as in verse 23, though here the suggestion is that not only will the outcome be evil for the wicked, but so too is the pursuit itself. They desire evil, and in the end they find it. Verse 28, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? This cluster of Proverbs deals with the theme of gain and security. There is no true security in earthly riches. That's the main idea. Real and lasting prosperity is found only in righteousness. We begin to taste the fruit of our decisions here on the earth, even more so in the case of the wicked. The second half of verse 30 is much debated. The LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, renders that, but the souls of transgressors are cut off before their time, closed quote. As much as we all enjoy the ESV rendering here, hearkening back as it does to the old KJV, most of the commentators believe it is incorrect. Remember, these are contrasting parallels by and large. The first part of verse 30 is saying that righteousness brings the reward of life. So then we would expect something like wickedness results in untimely death. And that's exactly what appears to have been there in the original text. And that better transitions into the message of verse 31, which is that the consequences we experience for our decisions are experienced immediately, not to mention eternally, for the righteous and sinner alike. The Lord is good, his ways are right, and he rewards all those who pursue them. Thanks be to God. Amen to that. Pastor Paul, I know that Proverbs 11 covered a number of topics, but I'd like to go back and close the loop, as it were, on our conversation about money. So last week, we talked about how money is not all bad. In fact, money is generally good. It is a good thing that we must not treat as a God thing. But in and of itself, money is good, and having money can protect us from some of the ups and downs of daily life. Yeah, exactly that. Money is a good thing, but definitely not a God thing. Right. And then here in chapter 11, the deficiencies of money are really being brought out. Money can't do anything to help you on the day of wrath. When really bad things happen, rich and poor people suffer alike. Yeah, a a comet hitting the earth is not going to care about how much money you have in your bank account. Mm. It's going to squash rich and poor people equally. And a raging forest fire is going to burn down mansions and shacks with equal impunity as we witnessed here in Canada over the summer. So money is good, but it cannot provide real lasting security in this life or the next. Exactly. I really appreciated verse 28 that says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. The real issue is trust, isn't it? It's not wrong to have money, but it is foolish to trust in it. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. I think it is wrong to love money, and I think it is wrong to trust money. 
And as some of the other Proverbs in this chapter point out, it's also wrong to hold on to your money when you should be distributing it. But it's not bad in and of itself. It's part of human life. And using it well and stewarding it wisely is something that God's people are supposed to learn to do. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to learning more about that in the days and episodes to come. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.